I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to a special edition of Tasting Menu. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And in this episode, we bid farewell to our iconic home. For over 50 years, The Economist has been based at 25 St. James's Street, just south of Piccadilly, in the West End of London. It's Lower Mayfair. Around the corner is Berry Brothers, a wine merchant that dates back to the 1600s. Our private clubs that we belong to are just down the street. And though I'm a modern guy who embraces new things, honestly, leaving the tower breaks my heart. But time holds me green and dying as I sing in my chains like the sea, and we are carried to a new location. So it is time for us to celebrate the place that has inspired our journalism for over half a century, our former home, the Tower. In the technology editor's office, two stickers depicting passenger jets attached lopsidedly to the window by a previous inhabitant of the room about 20 years ago, perhaps while tipsy. In the business editor's office, a heap of notebooks on the floor. In the corridors, modern art bought long ago, some of it good, all of it ignored. Indeed, you can work in a building for years without even noticing it. And journalists who pride themselves on their acuity can be especially oblivious to their surroundings. We are a cynical bunch who refuse to be impressed by the grand offices of company bosses and politicians so why should we pay attention to our own? Perhaps, too, economist writers are particularly susceptible to the delusion that their business runs on pure brain power. In 1965, an architect and a psychologist came to admire our offices. They were breezily informed that most of the journalists could work just as well in a barn. And this quote-unquote barn had some rather good views. From the upper floors of the Economist Tower, we are surrounded by buildings only half as high. Looking north, we can see the hills of Hampstead and Highgate. To the east are the city and the Shard. Those of us who look out to the south can use Big Ben as an office clock. But for two German bombs, things would have been completely different. The first, which fell in 1941 destroyed the Economist's offices in Bouvery Street, near Fleet Street, the old heart of British journalism. The newspaper fled to offices near Waterloo Bridge. In 1947, it moved to St James's, into a building that was vacant because it too had been bombed. Number 22 Ryder Street was not London's smartest address. It had been an upmarket brothel before the war, Nancy Balfour, the United States editor, shocked a taxi driver by asking to be taken there. It was, say the few who remember it, a pleasant jumble of offices and corridors. But by the late 1950s, it had started to pinch, and The Economist decided to do something radical. The idea was to build upwards, but the local government imposed strict restrictions. The obvious way of dealing with a tight, lot area ratio is to maximise two valuable things, 
street front property, and views. The economist could have erected a two or three story building hard up against St. James's Street, a grand thoroughfare, and popped a tower out of the top. A template for this podium and tower approach existed Lever House in New York, built in 1952 by the firm of Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, and already much copied. But the economist opted for a more unconventional approach. Alison and Peter Smithson, a married couple who ran a small architecture practice from their home in Chelsea, had a drastically different idea. Instead of maximizing street frontage, they proposed abolishing it. They would knock down a tall Victorian building on St. James's Street and replace it with stairs and a ramp leading to a plaza. A car park, a restaurant, and shops would be swept underneath it, visible only from the back streets. From the plaza, three separate buildings would rise, like the pins in a British electrical plug. The Economist and the Economist Intelligence Unit, a research firm, would occupy the tallest one. Perhaps this weekly paper saw something unique about this couple. Although the couple were never prolific builders, they were prolific writers. Words poured out of them. Not always intelligible words to those outside the charmed circle of modernist architecture, but plentiful, punchy words. One word in particular would have delighted an economist headline writer. In 1953, Alison Smithson had got hold of a novel Swedish term, Nibrutalism, and applied it to a house that she had designed in West London. New brutalism soon became simply brutalism. It was a clever word, evoking beton bru, raw concrete, and art bru, the untutored art of the mentally ill. To the Smithsons and their acolytes, it meant material frankness and clarity. And that material had to be just right. When the Smithsons proposed raw concrete, their clients had retorted that they preferred a building faced with Portland stone, the establishment rock, which adorns buildings such as Buckingham Palace, St. Paul's Cathedral, and the Treasury. In the end, a wonderful compromise was reached. Most Portland stone comes from deep in the limestone beds that form the Isle of Portland in Dorset. It is creamy, smooth, and excellent for carving. But towards the top of the beds lies a metre thick layer of messy rock known as roach. In places, roach contains fragments of oyster shells. In others, the stone is pitted with screw shaped holes. Formed when other shells dissolved in situ. Roach had been used as a building material since the 18th century, but it was considered more appropriate for workaday structures. The Smithsons thought it just the thing, and the contrast between the rough shelly roach and the clear glass windows of the three modern buildings in the Economist Plaza is stark and beautiful. And so the tower and its neighboring siblings came to be. The tower opened in 1964. Jeffrey Crowther, the Economist's chairman, who had championed the Smithsons, said generously that it would be the architect's ornament. In the future, he predicted, few would remember that the Economist had commissioned the buildings, just as nobody remembers who asked Christopher Wren to build St Paul's Cathedral. At that time, it seemed as though the Economist development could be a template for constructions all across London. The plaza was just a beginning. Peter Smithson had written in 
the first part of a more general system of pedestrian ways at various levels, which should be an essential part of London. George Kasabov, an assistant in his office, created a photo montage in which he repeatedly superimposed the economist development across Westminster. Ego, I suspect, he says now, by way of explanation. But some things didn't quite work out. The car park leaked. The Economist Intelligence Unit, which was and is independent of the newspaper, did not move in after all, thinking the building too expensive. The company scrambled to find tenants for the lower floors. The plaza disappointed too. The architects had imagined it thick with people, even claiming it would become a tourist attraction. But few Londoners used it to cut through St James's. Hardly surprising. As the district already has lots of pleasant streets, the design of the building lends itself to creative conversation. Everybody at the Economist can tell stories about the people they have shared offices with over the years: their kindness, their messiness, their noisy apple eating. From office dialogues, stories emerge. A conversation between the energy editor and the economics editor, who share an office. Turned into a cover story on the economics of cheap oil, the building makes it hard to hold larger conversations, which means less useful group thinking, but also fewer unproductive mass meetings. Yet the fact that there were separate floors made things a little bit more troubling. An architecture critic who visited the tower in the late 1960s noticed a worrying lack of traffic between floors. And that has persisted, and the physical division created a bit of friction. The division most gossiped and quetched about is the one between the business and finance reporters of the twelfth floor and the foreign news reporters of the thirteenth. Two tribes characterized by one long departed editor as roundheads and cavaliers, but all are unfortunate. Almost no protests were raised when the sale of the building was announced in two thousand fifteen. With the exception of some old-timers and nostalgic sentimentalists like me, the sale was linked to a share buyback as Pearson, an education publisher that had lost interest in newspapers, sold the Financial Times, which had a fifty percent stake in the Economist. Moreover, the offices suit us less and less well, as the Economist has launched new multimedia products. Numbers of staff have risen. New sorts of teamwork can make our two-person cells a bit more of a restraint than they used to be. But we want to take some of the essence and aesthetics and culture of our former home into our new one. A questionnaire sent to the staff asking what they wanted in a new building turned up assorted requests for better bike sheds and yoga facilities. Above all, though, people said they wanted offices much like the ones many have occupied. The past fifty years. Of course, what makes the Economist is not so much the building, but the people inside of it. That's all for this episode of Tasting Menu. Remember, if you like our journalism, consider subscribing. You can do so by going to subscriptions.economist.com. You'll be glad you did, and so will we. From London, indeed, from the Adelphi Building, this is the Economist. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.